because it's my grandma's favorite hymn. Uh, but it, great is thy faithfulness, the words go, O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. And that's, it's, a, it's a beautiful line. It, it's great poetry as it, it goes on. But unlike some old hymns that have very sweet ideas that aren't necessarily all that biblical, great is thy faithfulness, that, that line, there is no shadow of turning with thee, is a line that comes straight from the text. It comes straight from James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So I've just I've always found that to be a fascinating way to refer to God the Father, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's no variation or shadow due to change in God. And this is an important idea throughout Scripture. If you look at the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, prophet Malachi, and he's, he's using this as a, a word of uh, hope for the people of Israel who are sinful. But verse 6 of Malachi chapter 3 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. If God were to change, he would consume his people, it says there. Uh, but he doesn't change, and so they can have hope. They can have confidence in him. This idea of the unchanging nature of God is what theologians have classically referred to as God's immutability. God cannot be muted. He cannot be changed. He cannot be acted upon. So if we just think about this logically for a moment, if God were to change, if God were to change, either he would change for the worse, right? Because he's perfect, so he would have to get worse, which would mean he would sin, and, and therefore he's no longer God. He's no longer holy. He's no longer perfect. Or, so if we rule that out, well, God can't change for the worse, then if God were to change for the better, that would imply that God needed to get better, that he wasn't perfect, that he wasn't complete and, and holy to start with. And so if we accept that God is capable of change, we would essentially have to accept that God is not God as Scripture reveals him. And so it's, it's important uh, in, in understanding Scripture, it's important in understanding classic Christian theology that God is an unchanging God. He is an immutable God who does not need to change and therefore does not change. It's part and parcel of God's godness to be unchanging. And this is affirmed in our text here in 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. So if you remember what we talked about last week, we, we spent some time on, ver on chapter 15 along with 13 and 14. And in chapter 15, Samuel is coming to Saul and rebuking him because Samuel had sent, God, or sent Saul on a mission from God to destroy the Amalekites. And if you remember, Saul doesn't actually do that. He doesn't completely wipe out the Amalekites. He saves King Agag and saves the best of the livestock so that they can sacrifice them. And Samuel comes, and he comes to rebuke Saul. And here, as he's going to leave, verse 27, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. 
And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And here's the key verse, verse 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. God doesn't change, and therefore God does not have to ever regret his actions because he doesn't change his mind about whether they were a good idea or not. He, he knows what he's doing, and he is going to carry it out. He does not lie. He is, his word is unchangeably perfect. His word, in fact, defines what truth is. We, we see that in John chapter 17, Jesus praying to the Father. He says that, sanctify your people in the truth. Your word is truth. If you memorize that in the King James, thy word is truth. Just like that, the, the very essence of what truth is, is the word that God speaks. He does not regret because he, he doesn't change. Even He doesn't even change his mind. God doesn't do something and then think better of it the way that, that we often do, the way I do multiple times a day. <laughs> you know, where I, I do something or I say something, I think, could have done that better, could have said that better. God doesn't ever have to do that. But here in 1 Samuel 15, it seems like there might be an issue with this. Because if you look at verse 11, after Saul has disobeyed God and God comes and speaks to Samuel, here's what God says. This is the word of God. Beginning in verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And if you look at the end of the chapter, verse 35, after Samuel has gone away, left Saul, or, yeah, Samuel has gone away and left Saul. End of verse 35, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So we have a tension here, right? Who's right? Is Samuel the authorized spokesperson for God in Israel, who the text never gives us any indication that we should distrust Samuel? He's speaking for God and says, the glory of Israel does not lie or have regret. He's not a man that he should have regret. But then, verse 11, God speaking to Samuel says, I regret that I have made Saul king. End of the text. The author tells us the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king. It's important to remember when we're reading our Bible that the author is not stupid. Okay, that's that's a key, like a, a key important hermeneutical principle. As you're trying to think, how do I understand the Bible? Remember that the author knows what they're saying. They know that this tension is here. Some people they'll read through this and they'll say, "Well, look, there's this contradiction, and the Bible can't be true because of this contradiction." Well, assume that there's some authorial intelligence happening. That that this tension is placed before us with with intent. Apparent contradictions in the Bible are not sloppy mistakes that we're supposed to be looking either for details that will clarify for us what's happening, or here, I think there is an intentional tension set up that we're supposed to feel. 
we're, we're supposed to feel. Why is there a sense in which God can say he regrets, and yet Samuel is right to agree with all those other verses that we read, and we could have read more, that say God doesn't change. God doesn't need to have regret. What's going on here? The, the core message of the Bible is, is clear enough, simple enough for a child to understand. But tensions like this, the, the word of God often will, will give us things that are riches, that will repay us for what the, the Puritan theologian John Owen called assiduous meditation like serious, hard thinking. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I, I don't normally try to go this deep into theology as we're preaching through the Bible, but I think this chapter demands that, some hard thinking about what does it mean for God to regret and not regret. So let's meditate. What does the word regret in this passage mean? Same word, uh, the Hebrew word Nahem, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's what it looks like phonetically when it's transliterated into English. Uh, that, that word is used in reference to God 29 times in the Old Testament. And, and Dale Ralph Davis in his first Samuel commentary, he, he notes that while the nuances of, of how that word is used change in, in each place, there seems in every single one of these places to, to be this core idea of an emotional response. There, there's an emotional idea that, that's tied to God having regret. And, and we need to bear in mind as we're, again, as we're looking just another principle here for reading the Bible. When you're reading the Bible, don't just assume that words think what you think they mean. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. And so we're going to look at another place where this word is used. Genesis chapter 6 which in some senses is even more striking than 1 Samuel 15. Genesis chapter 6, we'll start reading in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord, same word here, regretted, that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So there's a parallel phrase to regret. The parallel phrase is, it grieved him to his heart. And the, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am, here's another parallel phrase, sorry, I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, is God sorry? Is God regretting because he's surprised about what happened? Did God create man with this beautiful garden and think, here, I've given them everything they could ever want. Now they're going to obey me and they're going to live happily ever after and things are going to go great. No. God knows from the beginning exactly what's going to happen. If you look at Isaiah 46... Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 8, says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. 
I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God's not surprised by anything that happens. God is always working out his will through every circumstance in human history. I think another place you see this is in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 verses 3 and 4. Paul opens this letter with like a a hymn of praise. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose before the foundation of the world to take those who would trust in Christ. He, He chose them, put them in Christ, and encountered them holy and blameless before the world ever began. Well, what that means is that God had a plan for salvation before the world began, which means that God created the world in full knowledge that people would rebel and there would need to be a plan for salvation. Like, God knows all of this ahead of time. None of it's taking him by surprise. None of it is is shocking to him. But even though God knows all of this from the very beginning, this sin, falling short of his glory, rebelling against him, and the judgment which follows do not delight God. God has sorrow over human sin. So, if making Saul king, or for that matter, creating human beings in Genesis 6, if that was a source of pain for God, did he make a mistake in doing it? Did God make a mistake in creating something, doing something that would cause him pain? God created a world. He made creatures whom he knew would rebel. He didn't do any of this out of necessity. God did not need the world. God did not need you. He didn't need me. He didn't need to make human beings. He he didn't, even in making us, he doesn't have to make us the way he made us. He didn't have to make us with the ability to to choose to disobey. But God did not make a mistake. The glory of Israel doesn't lie. His regret is not like ours, born of sin and failure. God has sorrow over our failures, not his. If we ask why would he make the world this way, I think the short answer is the answer that the Bible gives is that the answer doesn't the Bible doesn't give an answer. Why did he do it? Other than he wanted to. He he wanted to to display his glory. I think we see that throughout especially the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 43 in particular. God creates human beings for his own glory, but we don't understand why is that why is creating this whole process 
where people would rebel against him. Like, how does that bring him more glory than just him being himself for all eternity without man? I, Isaiah 55, verse 8, tells us that my thoughts are not your thoughts, says God, and my ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the, that the secret things, the, the why did God create this mess? <laughs> he didn't create the mess. Create the world that became such a mess. Why did he do that? Those secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. And so he has revealed a lot about how he's working in this world that he has made. He didn't make a mistake in creating us this way, creating us good and allowing us to rebel against him. But even that sort of regret or sorrow that's born not of his own failure, but of our failure, of our sin, doesn't that imply that, isn't it still a change in God's actions if we see his actions reverse? Doesn't that imply that God must have changed? Saul goes from being God's choice. Remember, who told Samuel to pick Saul and set him up as king? Well, God did. And now, verse 28 of 1 Samuel 15, God's rejecting him. God is the one who has torn the kingdom away from Samuel. Is God changing? I think Matthew Matthew Henry's commentary here is very helpful. He says, God does not alter his will, but he wills an alteration. God's desire does not change to create a kingship in Israel for this rebellious people who, through whom, even though their desire for a king was wrong, he's going to use that to bring forth the, the great king of kings. But even, even this transition where, where Saul is falling away from his position, and now in chapter 16, Samuel's going to go anoint David, that transition is part of God's plan. And so, though God does not force Saul to sin in any way, he's, he's punishing Saul for his sin. He is using Saul's sin for his good purpose and for the plan of the people of Israel. If you look at Genesis 20, not 29, Genesis 49, verse 10, uh, Israel, Jacob, is blessing his sons. And when he gets to Judah, he says that from Judah the scepter will not depart. God, God is telling the people of Israel, clear back in Genesis, that the, the great king, who in, in Genesis would be tied to Genesis chapter 3, the one who is to crush the head of the serpent, the one who is the ultimate king of kings to come, comes from Judah's line. And Saul is from Benjamin. And so even there, like a, a careful reader is going to think, we should be expecting that Saul isn't the one who's going to stay in this position. God's going to raise up someone from Judah to be the king. And that's what's going to happen in the text. God's treatment of Saul has changed in a human sense, but he's doing so in response to Saul's disobedience. But when we say in response, we're not saying that God has to make this up on the fly or adjust as he's going, because God is the one who declares the end from the beginning. But as human beings, we experience that 
dynamically. We experience it in time. God is outside of time. Time is a thing that God created. God is not bound by it, and so he sees the end from the beginning. He's working the end from the beginning as someone who's not constricted by it. Uh, an analogy I heard someone use one time was, was like, everything in creation is like a box. And God created the box. He creates everything in the box. He is not bound by the box. He can enter into it. He can work in it. He, he, I mean, in, in the person of Jesus Christ, he literally enters the box, and, and he's present within it always. But he's not bound by it. And so, so while we experience God relenting, sorrowing, all these things in time, God, God's experience of these things is different than ours. That's mind-boggling. Like that's, If that's not coming across clear, it's because I don't really understand it either. We can't. Our, our minds aren't God's, and we can't fully understand it. But we have, even though we have a God who is transcendent and over all things, he does relate to us in this world that he has created. So he's not deciding on the fly what to do or waiting to see how we will act as if that's going to change his plans. We can't change his plans. And this is comforting for us because it means that no one can thwart the plan of God. No one can change God's will ultimately. And that's comforting to us on a couple of levels. So that's comforting in in the sense that the enemies of God in this world cannot change God's plan. My enemies, the, the enemies that the psalmist is praying against in Psalm 140, they can't change God's plan. He's not worried about these things. He, he's not worried about all the chaos and disorder in the world. God's not sitting up in heaven chewing his fingernails. He will accomplish his purpose no matter what's going on. And if we're believers in him, if we're members of his kingdom... Boy, that gives me a lot of confidence that even though I look out and I see what in the world, like, how is this possible? God's, God's not nervous. And it's also comforting on a really personal level because I wonder if you've felt the way I've often felt where, wow, I've really blown it. God, I, I messed up that chance. I had an opportunity to share the gospel and I didn't do it. I... I had an opportunity to really have a teachable, loving moment with my child or to express care for my wife. Instead, I used angry, harsh words. I've blown it. You fill in the blank from your own life. Like There's, there's so many times when we can feel like, God, have, have I messed up my life so much that you can't use me? You've never messed up God's will. And, and if you repent of your sin... And trust in him moving forward. His spirit will give you the grace and the ability to keep serving him. And he will use that evil in your past for his good. That's a great comfort to me. That, that I can't screw up God's plan. I can't mess up his will. And he will use all of the baggage, all of the mess in my past for his good purpose. Romans 8.28 Saul did not mess up God's plan. God's character, God's purpose for Israel never changed. His blessing of Saul, though, and his use of Saul are in that dynamic relationship of, of whether Saul's going to be obedient to God or not. 
And Saul's willingness to obey and worship from his heart aren't there. And so God removes the kingdom from him. Now that's a process that's going to take till the end of the book before Saul's actually dead and, and off the throne. But he knows it's coming. So what are we to make of all of this? Uh, just two things. Yeah, well, not just two things, but two things that I, I want us to think about. First, we should see that that God here in 1 Samuel 15 is a God who hates sin. Hates sin. It's serious. It has consequences. He, he removes the kingdom from Saul. And as we talked about last week, I, I think ultimately what you see here is is because of Saul's rejection of God spiritually, it's it's a foreshadowing of, of his ultimate spiritual rejection. Like if we if we are steadfast in our refusal of God the way that Saul was, then God will reject us as well. And that's not something that gives God any pleasure. God hates sin and God hates the consequences of sin. If you look at Ezekiel 33, Again, one of the false pictures of God that we can get in our heads is that God's just waiting around, hoping to zap us when we fail, hoping that we mess up so that he can punish us. Especially when people look at the Old Testament, they think of God that way. But Ezekiel 33:11 gives us a very different picture. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn back from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God calls out to people in their sins, don't die, live. That's, that's the, the refrain in Deuteronomy where, where Moses is speaking to the people. He says, don't die. Don't walk away from God. Don't rebel against God. Obey him, trust him, live. That's what God wants for us. We also see that, that God not only has sorrow over sin and its consequences, he rejoices in repentance. We saw that in Ezekiel 33 there. You see that in the story of Jonah. Jonah's an interesting book because God sends this prophet to Nineveh, to a, to a, Gentile, to a Gentile city, in Assyria, and he just sends him with this message of judgment. He doesn't even tell him to repent. Like, that's that's not part of the message that we see Jonah, you know, after the whole fish incident. Once he actually gets to the city, he doesn't preach repentance. He just says, 40 days, and the city's up in flames. 40 days, and God's going to destroy you all. And the people repent in response to that message, saying, maybe God, maybe God will will we'll relent. Maybe he will be kind to us. Maybe he will have mercy on us. And when God does have mercy, Jonah the prophet sits there and pouts, and God says, what is wrong with you? Should I not have mercy on 120,000 people who don't know their left hand from their right hand and also much cattle? <laughs> God even throws in the cows. Like the, the people and even their animals, I don't want to suffer for their sins. That's why I sent you here, was so that when you preached the judgment of God, they would repent and turn from their sins. That's what God was after. In Luke chapter 15, 
Let's read the first seven verses of Luke 15. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And I think it's so instructive that Jesus speaks in parables. I, I need to think more in parables. I don't think this way. And, and Jesus uses parables often because they stick with us. Verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. God has sorrow over sin, and on the flip side of that same coin, he has joy over repentance. He is a God who loves to forgive. Second, we should take heart that this unchanging God has made an unchanging promise to those who cling to Christ. Hebrews 6. Beginning verse 13 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. In the, after the order of Melchizedek. This unchanging God, this God who will not lie, this God who does not regret, has promised that those who hold fast to Jesus have someone who has gone into the Holy of Holies before them, someone who has ushered in a better covenant, someone who has been obedient for you in your place. God in his unchangeable, immutable holiness will punish all sin. For Saul, that meant losing what had been conditionally given to him. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, that means we cannot lose what has been given to us because of Christ's obedience and what he paid for on the cross. He purchased us, Acts 20, I think it is, says, with his own blood. The blood of God himself purchased believers in Jesus. And because God is not changing, we can be sure that he's going to keep accepting that sacrifice forever, that once-for-all sacrifice. So, does God regret? Does God have sorrow? There is, there is a sense in which we can and must say that. That's what the Bible says there in 1 Samuel 15. He has, he has an, 
It's not the same as us because while we are made in the image of God, his experience is it's different than ours. And we, we can't, the, I think the best way I've heard it expressed is that they're analogous, right? The scripture uses these words on purpose. The, his experience of sorrow, that emotional is, is how it seems to be, experience of sorrow is a sadness over our sin. And he, he created us knowing that that was going to happen. But it's not a regret that says, oh, I made a mistake. It's not a regret. It's not a sorrow that, that says, oh, I shouldn't have done that to start with. Because he had it all planned out from the beginning. And so we can trust that his purposes are sure. And that, and that for everyone who's trusting in Jesus, that that promise includes taking you home to be with him forever because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father God, your ways are higher than ours and so incomprehensible to us. And yet we thank you that you're also a God who reveals, a God who speaks, who has shown us so much of who you are and what you've done. And so we ask that you would help us to cling to what we can see and cling to what you've shown. We pray these things in Jesus' name.